A um, couple of different ways to look at this psalm. And again, this is the third week that we've been in this. And I don't think I've mentioned this to you. A few commentators, um, they divide this psalm up a little bit with, and, and it was unclear to me in reading some of their writings whether they look at this as much as a prayer as some of the other ones. I'll exp- that'll make more sense in a second. Because verse 1, it starts off where David is talking to God. Right? I think that's, that's pretty clear. Verse 2 and 3 is been categorized as David talking to really his enemies, the sons of men. Particularly if this was written in the context of when David fled Jerusalem when his son Absalom took over. The sons of Ben, and we, we, I touched on this a couple, I think two weeks ago. The sons of Ben um, could be a representation of those in the leadership of Absalom's um, administration. That's the word. The, the Absalom administration, right? Um, so two and three... Two and three, especially if he is speaking to those who are in rebellion against God's anointed. Because that's what Absalom was doing. And all of those who had decided to team up with him and to join forces with him, they were in rebellion against God's anointed. So how long you turn my glory, that is the anointed one, into shame. Again, this really foreshadows what David experienced, what he writes about, foreshadowing that which the Messiah will go through, that which Jesus will go through. Um, Glory to shame, and how long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? And then, then that's the first pause is there. And so, you know, we, we read... Even with reading the word Selah, we read verse 2, say Selah, and we jump right into verse 3. This this is how we read it, right? That makes sense. But there's a pause between verse 2, the challenge, the question, the question that basically says, what are you doing? You're going in the wrong direction. Stop and think about it a second. And then... There's an affirmation in verse 3. So we don't pick that up if we just read this plain through. But we see this as a, as a prayer but also a musical composition. And by the way, can, can songs be prayers? Maybe. Some of you say yes. Some of you don't know. Some of you don't. Yes. Prayer is an event, but it is also a life, a lifestyle. The entirety of our life is a prayer. Um, 
Augustine. When you ask that question, it just popped in my head. Boy, do I got a good book for you to recommend to you, Tim. Augustine wrote a book called Confessions. You can tell by the very first sentence, he starts off as a prayer. It, the whole book is a prayer. But he's sharing his story. Because it's, it's, a, little bit, it's a little bit different form of prayer than what I think we most normally associate with prayer. So when you pray, well, I wasn't planning going here, but that's a good question, Tim. So when you pray, how do you pray? Anybody? What's your, do you have a format? Do you have a structure? Do you, do you have a go-to means or a guide or you pray in a certain way all the time. What chapter and verse? Well, it's not, that's not even the question. What, what chapter and verse and how do you interpret it? You know, for example, the book of Revelation. It's got many different ways to interpret the book of Revelation. Um, but according to Augustine, the entirety of our life is a prayer. If, chapter and verse, Acts 17... If it is true, and I believe it is, in him we live and we move and we have our being. Now, how do you unpack that? You might unpack that differently than I do. That doesn't mean you're right and I'm wrong or vice versa. Uh, it just does mean that we perhaps apply that in a little bit different manner. Um, Brother Lawrence I don't know if you ever heard of Brother Lawrence. I'm, I'm sure you have. Um, Brother Lawrence, um, after confessions, um, practicing the presence of God. I've got a copy if you want to read it, um, Mary. I think you have read it. Um, practicing the presence of God. Brother Lawrence understood this. And you know what Brother Lawrence did? It's interesting because you bring that up. And it just Brother Lawrence worked in the kitchen. He was essentially a... A lay monk. Does everybody know who the lay monk is? <laughs> Thank you for that valuable and, and, uh, insight there. He was not ordained, but he, he, he'd lived a life set aside as, as a monk. Praying short prayers. Now understand, when I say Benedictine, when I talk about Benedict, Benedict of Nursia, or Nursia, if you prefer. If you're Roman Catholic, you might want to call him Saint Benedict. But anyway, who predated Roman Catholicism, by the way. They, he wrote the rule. And the rule is, by the way, the rule. I, I read the rule. And it's, 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 it's peppered with chapters and verses, by the way. Um. In the same way that if you've ever had breakfast with Phil Yates, how he peppers his food. Of course, he's kind of backed off. He would take the lid off and just pour the whole, yeah, but, you know, that's Phil. But they believe in short prayers because they integrated their prayer life, their communication with God, with everything else that they did. 
And, and the Benedictine has seven different hours or daily offices, if you want to call them that, of prayer every day. Um, it's taken from the scripture. Um, I like the morning and evening sacrifice. Two is a lot better than seven for me, if, if you want to. But, but prayer is the event. You set aside the time, but prayer is also a life. Because whether or not you are communicating with God, now go with me on this one, Brian. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Seriously. Wasn't planning on going here, and I, we're, sorry, we're already halfway through, and we haven't even started in verse 4 yet. Uh, but I asked the question. No, no. Um, I'm just going to read it to you. In the book of Matthew. Because I, I think the acronyms are helpful. I do. I think they're helpful. Um, they're more helpful if you can remember them. Or, you know, but I think, I think they're helpful. Um, in Matthew 6, you guys know where I'm going. Verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they stand. Okay, I'm, I'm not quite there. Okay, I just want to cut to the chase here. Um, pray like this. I'm ESV. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And, of course, the ESV doesn't have it. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The New King James has that in the manuscripts. So Jesus says you pray like this. Um, and I think it's, it's helpful. One of, the, one of the prayers that Jesus set apart or made uh, recognition of in the New Testament was the prayer of the publican, tax collector. God have mercy upon me, a sinner. Said that person went away justified. Um, so you have this, this indictment in, in verse 2, followed by a, a pause, and then knowing that the Lord has set aside for himself, who is godly, and the Lord will hear when I call to him. So he's going back to the same confidence that he's already talked about in verse 1. I like the idea, again, part of it is because I think, again, the acronyms are helpful. But this, if we look at Psalm 4 completely as a prayer, it doesn't really fit that pattern, does it? Um, but, but I don't think it has to. And I don't think the acronym has to fit this pattern either. I, I think there's, there's plenty of chapters and verses, if you want to you know, go there, that, that will really back up either one. Um, and then to be angry, do not meditate, or do not sin. Uh, meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Now, okay, Tim said something, I think it was two weeks ago. You're comparing this a little bit to Zen Buddhism. I think it was two weeks ago. All right. 
Okay. Well, I thought about it quite a bit. And we talked about the idea of, of, of silent prayer, but not... The goal is never really to empty your mind because even sitting quietly before God requires an awareness to be still and know. Know is awareness. Be still and know that I am God. That, that's paying attention to God. That's not, that's not completely zoning out. And the difference is the spiritual discipline of prayer for the Christian compared, let's say, to a non-Christian, in this case a Zen Buddhist, is they will do the spiritual exercise as a way to hopefully bring them into a place of greater solitude, bring them into a place of greater, um, yeah, which is the whole goal of Zen Buddhism. Um, but the goal of the Christian in prayer, even in being still and knowing that I'm God, is to avail oneself to be transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's two totally different things because the Christian recognizes that within the spiritual discipline itself, it has no, I don't believe it has any power other than you avail yourself to God through that medium by which he can do a greater work in your life. Does that make sense? You're chewing on it, I can tell. Yeah, I'll let you chew for a while. Rather than, I have to do this to be more spiritual, I'm doing this because I want to meet with God, and as I meet with God, he will do the transformation. Be ye conformed by the transforming of your mind, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Um, which comes right after Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. There, that means there's a whole lot behind that that I'm not going to jump into, or we'll, we'll, I'll, take, I, I'll need a half hour, right? Still chewing. Um, so, and then it says, uh, okay, Verse 4 and 5 and probably 6. Well, 6 is kind of a crossover verse. But it's believed by some commentators, 4 and 5, that David is talking to the people who fled Jerusalem with him, but they are discouraged, and he's trying to encourage them. That's why 6 is included in talking to uh, the people who are with him. Um, and it would make a lot of sense, because when David got kicked out of his kingdom, so did they. Essentially, be angry and do not sin. Um, in the book of James, I, I didn't really get a chance to f fully unpack this as much as I wanted. In the book of James, I'm, gonna, I'm a Bible or two short tonight. Well, I guess I can use it one more time. How's that? James chapter 1. You ever notice that if you use a lot of Bibles, you kind of get the feel of how one of them's laid out, and then you pick up another one, and you're like, you kind of get almost lost in it. Okay. James chapter 1, 
So, so then, my beloved brethren, verse 19. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Verse 20, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So, to be angry and to sin not. And so, God does give allowance for anger. Because can you help your anger at times? It's a human emotion. I'm trying to think where the scripture, Old Testament, God is angry with the what? The, the, the sinner or the ungodly? I can't remember which. Every day. So, it's a, can we help being angry? It's what you do with it. Yeah, it's what you do with it. Um, I have a friend of mine, he's kind of an angry blogger, and he, ha he, he, he coined a phrase. He says there are just sometimes he has to go out and slam his fingers in the car door. Because <laughs> he's typing, right? He's typing all this, and he doesn't want to type it out and, and post it. So he goes, he said, metaphorically, he goes and slams his fingers in the, in the car door. Um, so you meditate with, uh, within your heart on your bed, be still. And then another call to sit quietly, say la, sit and think about that for a while. And it's almost like we go into verse 3. Offer the sacrifice of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Now, this word sacrifice, let's put this here for now. This word sacrifice, um, it's linked with the idea of offering, Psalm 40, verse 6. We won't take the time to turn there. Of any kind of offering, but also 1 Samuel 6, Verse 5, Exodus 10, verse 25, it refers to the burnt offerings. Particularly what was called in Torah as the burnt offering. What's significant about the burnt offering was that whatever was offered on the altar was completely consumed on the altar. Everything. Everything was burnt. And it was symbolic of full consecration, the full giving of oneself to God. So this, he, he, David's really saying some deep stuff here. But it's also, so it's a calling of full consecration to God, but it's also, uh, this word was also used in referring to a peace offering. Leviticus 3, Leviticus 3, verse 1, Leviticus 17, 5. Um, what's significant about the peace offering? Now, by and large, they, for the most part, they were vegetarians then. They didn't eat a whole lot of meat until they would do a peace offering. In a peace offering... Part of the animal would go to the priest, and they would eat that. Everything that was not considered clean, edible, and kosher, all the in, organs, 
those would go on the altar and be burnt and offered up as a sacrifice to God. And the offerer, the worshiper, would get a portion of the offering, and they would cook it and share it with their family and friends. At Harvey's house. Yeah. <laughs> so it was this idea of communing, not only communing with God, but recognizing God's sovereignty and God's established order both in the family and in the nation because included in that, although they probably did not eat together, but included in that offering was something that was given to the priest. So it was, it was, it, it was really kind of a minor expression of shalom. Shalom being the wholeness of society. Everything is as it should be. The priests are cared for. God is worshipped. And there is a sense of communion and fidelity amongst the worshipers and the families. So um, there's a sense of fellowship. So that was the sacrifice that David is talking about. But he says it's the sacrifice of righteousness. Now, this word, the root of this word refers to a conformity to an ethical or to a moral standard. That's important in this. Conformity to an ethical or a moral standard. So, in the Old Testament, that standard is the nature and the will of God. So you offer the sacrifice of righteousness. Psalm 145 verse 7 says, The Lord is righteous, same word here, in all his ways and holy in all his works. So with that, David understands this. I hate to borrow from a psalm to teach a psalm, but I guess it's not the worst thing in the world, is it? David understands this in a few of the different psalms, but I'm just going to turn to one of them. And I want to take a quick look at the very last few verses of Psalm 51. Psalm 51, um, to the chief musician, a prayer of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, after he'd gone into Bathsheba. So when he was confronted with his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and also his sin of murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. So, um, if you, now if you read, if you read Torah carefully, there were certain sins that there were really no offering that was given that would cover for those sins. If you read Torah carefully, you'll, an adulterer was to do, what were they supposed to do with an adulterer or a murderer? Yeah, supposed to stone him. They were supposed to put him to death or her to death. And there wasn't 
really a, a sacrifice for those type of sins. Um, and yet, of course, if you... What's interesting about Torah is there's a whole lot more gray area than a lot of people want to read into it. But, but David writes here um, in verse 15... Verse 14. Actually, it goes back to creating me a clean heart, verse 10. Renew, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. I'm going to keep reading. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me in your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Verse 14, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. The God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you, verse 16 is important, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Does it sound, in reading verse 10 through 17, that David understood God's grace? Is David unfolding a new era? I could say dispensation, but I don't want to be misinterpreted on this. Is David unfolding a new era? No. David is understanding fully what the sacrificial system all pointed to. Now, let's continue. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. David prays this to God. Build the walls of Jerusalem, then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. With, there's a distinction here. With is a distinction type of word. It's like Brian was with Harvey when they came to church, right? There's still a distinction even though they're, they're, they're paired together. You were just both in my view, so I went with that. But with burnt offering and whole, whole burnt offering, then they shall offer bulls on your altar. In other words, the sacrifice of righteousness is a broken and a contrite heart which makes the person able to come and offer the sacrifice of the animal sacrifices on the altar, not the other way around. You see that? Can you chew in on that or you got something? No? Okay. Channel it to Brian, then he can say it. No, anyway, but I'm kidding. Your last sentence. Okay. Um, the sacrifices that, that God are, is taking delight in is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite. Verse 17. These are God you will not despise. You read this through all the way into verse 19. I'm not going to reread it, okay? But it seems very clear to me that with the broken and contrite heart, the sacrifice of righteousness, 
therefore then makes the person in a place where God will accept the animal sacrifice on the altar. And they are cleansed because of their broken and contrite heart, not because they showed up and put an animal on the altar. And I think, oft, what, I think the, the problem with the Pharisees was they spun that around. I didn't say that last time, but I'm just kind of adding to it, Brian. But they trusted in the mechanics of their religion rather than the heart relationship between them and God because they did not understand the grace of God. David understood a whole lot more than, than, than I think at times we realize. That's why he was a man after God's own heart. Yeah, he made a lot of mistakes, but he was a man after God's own heart. He understood um, what God desired from man. Now, he didn't write it, but Micah, he has shown you, old man, what the Lord requires of you to, uh, to love justice, to, uh, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. I think it's Micah 6, 8, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, no, David didn't write that, but I'm just... That theme, that's why, I, you know, I look at David and I'm, I'm like, David understood we were saved by grace. David understood they were saved by grace. Noah understood. And Noah found grace in the eyes of God, Genesis 7. Noah understood that. Um, he was what? A preacher of righteousness. Again, Conformity to an ethical and a moral standard, which happens to be the character and the nature and the will of God. One of the, I grabbed this, it was actually a note from the Geneva Bible, I think. I like the sentence, so I just grabbed it and threw it in my notes real quick. And it just said simply, serve God purely and not with outward ceremonies. Serve God purely and not with outward ceremonies. What in the world does that mean? For some. Why do you come to church? Okay. Do you get... Do you get more brownie points from God? I don't either. To learn, to fellowship. Also, in response to what God has called us to do, do not forsake the assembly of the saints. Um, to be, the, and fellowship is more than just being together. I, because I think part of the, the idea of fellowship is, is, is we're delving into the unknown and not even realizing it most of the time. Because when I, you know, I mean, Sunday mornings are just, they're wonderful, but I wake up sick most every Sunday morning. Uh, and, and until we, until, until about 10 minutes to 10, I'm just in a turmoil. And it's almost that way every Sunday morning. I, I, I count that off, I check that off onto spiritual warfare. Um, 
I mean, we've, I can't, you know, the car won't start, the internet won't work, or the printer is on strike, or Brian won't pick up his phone because the printer's on strike. No, I'm kidding, Brian, but, uh, you know, um, because, because when I finally get here, I'm talking about fellowship, okay? When I finally get here, I come with an expectation of not knowing what it is that God's going to do. And I think that's a realm of fellowship that we often don't take into account. We, we consider fellowship with everybody, and that's true, and that's correct. But we're not the only ones in the room, right? Because we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're also here. We're two or more together. Two or more gathered together. There I will be in the midst of them. Okay, you're in the midst of us, Lord. Now what? What's going to happen? Some of it I see. Some of it happens between some of y'all I never see. And that's all right. It's not my church. Right? You know, so... Um, I don't know where I was going with this, Tim, but serving God purely, but not with outward ceremonies. Now, I think we have some form. Every church has a liturgy. Every church. Even ours. A liturgy. Now, because I've, I've talked to people who like to make fun of liturgical churches. Oh, they just have to do it like this all the time and this and that. And, you know, I remember one time we, we, did, uh, we did the sermon first and then worship afterwards, and I just, I couldn't believe how, how, oft, how much that upset so many people's apple carts. You weren't here, so I can't blame you on it, Brian. But, uh, but yeah, we did the sermon first one, one Sunday. Um, I think it was Sunday we were doing communion. I wanted to, I wanted to, I think we were teaching on, pastor was on communion. And that really, yeah, and that really, that really threw the latecomers off, right? They didn't know what to, they, they walked, you could see it on their faces too. They're like, oh my goodness, what's going on? But anyway, um, just as we, I believe it's biblical to have times of prayer set aside, Morning and evening sacrifice. Um, in Israel, you had seven feasts. Three of those feasts, all the males were required. We talked about it last week, two weeks ago, tabernacles. All the males were required to come to the temple, come to Jerusalem. So it's not so much an either or, I think, as much as it is a both and. We incorporate these things into our lives because they're part of our rhythm. I mean, that, to me, that's kind of the unspoken gospel of creation is six days and then rest on the seventh, which is a rhythm that God ordained, which I believe were literal six days, but that's 24-hour days. That's just, but other people don't. I, I know Christians who don't believe it was a literal 24-hour day for six days, but. 
your mileage may vary. Um, I don't even want to get down there. I probably shouldn't have mentioned it. But anyway, I'm thinking of a friend of mine. Just actually, it kind of irritates me that he doesn't believe in a six literal 24-hour because he's so orthodox with everything else. But, um, and so, but you have these rhythms that are incorporated. They, the problem is that we make them an end unto themselves. Colossians, Paul writes to the Colossians and, and talks about the Sabbaths and the new moons and, and all these things. But he says the substance of all of these things are whom? Christ. It's part of that communication that God is communicating within the rhythm of life. That, and understandably so, but perhaps we should just become more aware. That's part of how God communicates to us. Every, every morning when I wake up and actually see a sunrise, which is probably three times a year. No, I'm kidding. That's God communicating to each of us the story of the resurrection one more time. So the rhythms of life, I think, are God-ordained, and I think they are important. But they are not an end on themselves, but they are a means by which I recognize that in him I live and I move and I have my being. Rather than this is what I have to do, but this is what God has incorporated into my life and called me to walk into as a means to have fellowship with him, as a means to commune with him. I mean, I start, I'll go home and start thinking about Sunday. But I did that before I was a pastor. That's almost ingrained in me. Um, Then there are, and put your trust in the Lord. I thought about this, that last half of verse 5. We're going to get through this tonight, actually. I only have about five minutes, but I'm going to talk real fast. I thought about this. Why, why did David say that? And, I, and I, I thought about that for a while, and I, so I wrote down, typed out, part of trusting God is worshiping him when you'd rather not. I think that's exactly what he's saying here. Because he's, he's still talking in the midst of a, of a difficult time. Uh, who will show us any good? Uh, it's a question. It's, it's, can anything good come from this? Have you ever gone through a trial and asked that question? I'm sure you have. Can anything good come from this? And it's almost like he's referring to a, like a dark night experience where finally he breaks through, you know, at the end of verse 6. But he says, well, you know, who's going to show us any good? How, how long are we going to live this way? How long are we going to have this trial? How long are we going to live uh, with, with this dark cloud hanging over us? And then he makes this, without really even saying that, he's making a comparison. Because he says, 
Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. So, do I have a few minutes? Okay, thanks. Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. Numbers chapter 6. I'm sorry. Numbers chap yeah, number 6. Either that or it's a typo. Something doesn't seem right. But let me turn there and figure it out. Right around verse 24. Oh, I was right. Thank God. Okay. So, verse 22 of number 6 says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance or his face upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Man, that's a heavy passage. I need 30 minutes on that one. I mean, really, there's a lot there. But I love how the Lord seals it when he says, so they will put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. That speaks of relationship. That speaks of character. That speaks of being transformed into the image of Christ. So much there that, that the Lord is talking about by lifting up his countenance. I, I, I think David is drawing right from number six when he, when he, when he wrote this. Um, Psalm 44.3 says, For they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword. He's talking about the Israelites. Bless you. They did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did, they, did their own arms save them. But it was your right hand. He's speaking to God. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance. Now draw that back into the sacrifice of righteousness or being still on your bed it is not by you practicing these spiritual disciplines that you are spiritually transformed but you avail yourself to the God who can transform you by lifting up his countenance upon you that a little better boom okay I think you'd already figured it out yeah you did okay um you have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and their wine increased. So um, that could also refer to the new grain and to the new wine. So it's interesting about gladness and joy. It's only mentioned 13 times in the Psalms. In Genesis 27, 28, it says, it, it's, uh, Israel is blessing one of his sons. And he says, therefore, may God give you the dew of heaven of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. He's blessing Jacob when he says this. That of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. So two staples. 
and, and the wine, the, the grain is a symbol for, for the substance. Well, actually, I, I could make a case. I, won't, I don't have the time, but I could make a case for I am the bread of life. The wine is a symbol for joy. So, particularly joy by being filled with the Holy Spirit. Then I will both lie down in peace. This is a night psalm. I will both lie down in peace and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Deuteronomy 33, uh, verse 12 says, Of Benjamin, he said, The beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him, who shelters him all the day long, and he shall dwell between his shoulders. Again, it speaks of that intimacy of dwelling with God. Um, this idea of peace, again, shalom. Where everything in life is as it should be. Not only the absence of strife, but the presence of wholeness and fullness and blessing and the abundance of grain and the abundance of wine. 